Uh, hello everyone and welcome to uh, Shot Reverse Shot. Uh, I'm Joe Gastineau, hello, and joining me as always via satellite is Ed Davis. How are you doing sir, alright? Uh, I'm doing very, very well. I'm very excited to uh, finally get started on this big, ambitious project of ours. Yes, finally. We are starting with part one of uh, our alternate 100. Um, we're not going to go over the rules again, because uh, the rules were in the last episode, uh, the preview episode, so if you're not familiar with them, go and check. But yes, we're picking 100 films with some restrictions. If you want to know what those restrictions are, go and listen to it. We've got too much to cover. We haven't got time for any of this tittle-tattle shit at the beginning. We don't want to be fanning around every time. Um, we're going to just kind of get into it. Um uh, unless you've got something to add, Ed? Uh, no, I think we've we've delayed by four months already, so I think we should get started as quickly as possible. Yeah, but we can't get started, Ed, uh, until we hear uh, my latest jingle. Now, fans of the show will know that uh, our top ten jingle, whenever it's heard, is uh, you know a highlight of the show. Some people listen just for that jingle. Um, and uh, I've done a new one. Uh, I'm quite pleased with it. Uh, here it comes. The Alternate 100. I think if that proves anything, Ed, it's that uh, my jingle work is top-notch. It is. You're you're one of the best in the business. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know who else I'm up against, but I'm probably the leader in the field. Um, right, anyway. Um, so, yeah, our top 100 begins, and I'm very excited. Um, and uh, we're not going to do these in any order. That's probably something we should have laid out in the rules. Um, they're presented kind of at random in just an order that we feel is uh, kind of interesting to talk about um, so without further uh, kind of delay like I said four months and I am stalling here <laughs> um, we're going to talk about our first film on the alternate 100 it is Jonathan Demme's 1984 concert movie Stop Making Sense the less we say about it sense what makes it uh what makes it so special uh well, well for me you know i'm very biased because i think uh, talking Heads probably in my top 10 bands of all time I, I really really do love them and this kind of captures them at their peak just as they before they kind of uh descended into sort of uh rancor and and slight overindulgence uh you know it's them when they're they're still very wiry and david byrne is at his weirdest mm. in a massive in a massive suit but uh i think what i really like about it is it's it's not just kind of a performance it kind of it, it becomes performance art at a certain point because rather than just being a, a straightforward concert where the band all comes out they kind of slowly build the band up by starting out with david byrne just on his own on a guitar and a tape player throwing himself around the stage to uh, playing psycho killer and then Tina Weymouth comes out and joins in for a song and then they add people or, until the whole band's on stage but it kind of gives it they they give the what could be just a straightforward performance a sense of a narrative and a rhythm that kind of builds as it goes along so it feels like you're watching some sort of uh, narrative or some sort of work of theatre rather than just a really good performance of great songs, which it is as well. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, unlike a lot of stage shows where it's kind of like immediately glossy and and kind of uh, shiny and and slick it starts on a completely bare stage with no 
stage lighting, no actual kind of uh, uh, coloured lighting or anything. It's just a blank stage with no back curtains or anything. David Byrne comes out plays his song and like I say as the uh, the members of the band join there's no attempt to hide the stage technicians who are pushing things on and bringing things in and plugging plugging stuff in um, it's very much a kind of stripped apart uh, look behind uh, the process of it and as this thing comes together it kind of turns into this uh, quite unique performance yeah and, and what I like about it is that all sounds like it's very sort of serious but the performances themselves are actually they're, they're really energetic and there's a great sense of fun to it. You know, the, the, the David Byrne as at the time, you know, it was just a, sh- a bundle of energies running around the stage and everything. And also, uh, he's just perfectly happy to be really goofy. As during uh, uh, this must be the place where he performs during the break, he uh, does a little dance with a, a standing lamp. Yeah, a bit of a, a bit. Of a, there's quite a few kind of nods to kind of films in there, isn't there? There's uh, that that kind of dance with the lamp is a, is a from a Fred Astaire movie, and uh, mm. I kind of I didn't kind of pick this up, but I read it that like when he's kind of stumbling around during uh, Psycho Killer, that's a nod to Breathless, uh, and uh, the guy getting shot at the end of Breathless. So uh, it's a very kind of cineliterate uh, um, performance without being kind of overly so. Yeah, exactly. Like, I didn't know that about uh, about Breathless, but you know when it, I like the fact that it works as performance and as homage at the same time like it doesn't feel like you're uh, missing out on the gag if you don't know that that's what's happening because it's still just this this bizarre and sort of wonderfully staged performance in turn right yeah i I think um i kind of always known of talking heads um and um kind of liked a few of their songs and kind of never really been into them that much but then uh, I hadn't actually seen this film before we started knocking around this list kind of at the end of last year um, and this was kind of one that was kind of first down and I kind of thought well okay I watched it and now I'm kind of becoming slowly obsessed with Talking Heads Yeah I think uh, the the thing that the, the film really captures about them is the way that David Byrne was both a really great interesting songwriter who clearly had all of these different influences that show up in the songs and so that it sounds like a weird mix of on the one hand like post-punk and funk but also gospel you know because he's a very kind of shimonic sort of figure who's like standing standing up there and almost preaching to the crowd mm. but he he was also someone and i think this this is true now like certainly if you ever see uh the paolo sorrentino film this must be the place where they have a a, a performance of him in there where you see his stage show now which does similar sort of things where there's people like interacting with props and performing as well as singing I think this is a really good shot at him as someone who is a creative mind who knows he's a really really good songwriter and that he's really talented in that regard but isn't kind of confined to that and wants to kind of explore that in a different space and you can really see that in how he constructed the stage show for Stop Making Sense Yeah, interesting, uh, Jonathan Demme uh, directed this, he'd go on to do uh, kind of a lot of uh, well-known work. He won an Oscar for Silence of the Lambs, um, but they, he also did uh, kind of a, a concert movie for Neil Young as well, didn't he? Yes, he did uh, Heart of Gold, which is uh, a, a more kind of traditional one with uh, in, intercut with uh, things of him driving around Nashville because it's all built around his performance at the Grand Ole Opry. But uh, that's another wonderful one because it's you know wonderful songs. Yeah. So um, yeah, stop making sense. Our first pick. That's uh, one down. Uh, <laughs> Ninety nine to go, and um, 
I would go so far as to say that the second film we've chosen um, for our uh, list, considering that it's an alternate list, is a bit controversial um, because we've chosen as our second film uh, John Schlesinger's 1969 film Midnight Cowboy. Ain't nobody laughing at me on the street. Hang your back, I seen them laughing at you, fella. Oh, what the hell do you know about women anyway? When's the last time you scored, boy? What's the matter? I only talk about a confession. We're not talking about me now. Well, when's the last time you've been to confession? What's between me and my confessor? Now, I kind of know what you're all thinking. Um, this is an alternate 100, supposed to be kind of films that aren't perhaps talked about in the the kind of uh, the way they should be and Midnight Cowboy is uh, Best Picture winner uh, in fact it won three Oscars it was the first X-rated film and I think to this date the only X-rated film to ever win uh, Best Picture it's, it's firmly ingrained in the public psyche it's uh, kind of a pop cultural touchstone it's been parodied a million times we all know the uh, the the Nilsson song we all know the bit where Dustin Hoffman goes I'm walking here I'm walking here but we're including Midnight Cowboy here because I think people only know the film because of those things and they kind of just forget how bold and experimental that film is yeah I mean absolutely first off I'd like to compliment you on your Dustin Hoffman impression it's, it's uncanny it is uncanny um but uh, I, I, I certainly fall into that cap because I put off watching Midnight Cowboy. I didn't put it off, you know, and like it, I didn't have a copy of it on my desk and just kind of keep using it as a coaster or something. <laughs> I, 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 I just kind of never got around to it, never felt an urge to watch it because if you tell me that something won Best Picture, I think in 99% of instances that means it's kind of a safe choice and that it's in some way a film that was really kind of middle brow and uh you know sort of something that's only historically interesting mm. and uh, so i when i watched it i wasn't really prepared for it to be as kind of as you say sort of bold and very daring and very uh heartrending and and really uh genuinely quite powerful as it is yeah i mean the kind of directorial choices that Schlesinger makes and some of the kind of as, as the kind of the film progresses, some of the editorial choices he makes, um, especially with the style of the editing, are really kind of you know light years ahead of their time. It seems. Yeah, I think uh, one of the problems I think in terms of its its legacy and why it gets overlooked is it's clearly very influenced by sort of French New Wave. It's got very kind of jagged editing, and certainly in the in- the way it uses sort of flashbacks mm. where they could just kind of dropped in and then not really commented on. They just kind of. The, the flashbacks themselves are kind of commenting on what's happening now and just slowly fleshing in the background of of uh, John Voight's character, but uh, for the most part, they're just kind. Of, his uh, his choices are obviously very influenced by that, and I think because there was that whole obviously it's kind of in the middle of of the early years of you know the the of New Hollywood and and that sort of thing. I think it, it kind of gets overshadowed by. On the one hand, things like The Graduate or, or Bonnie and Clyde, which did that a few years earlier, and then the kind of the huge deluge of amazing uh, cinema that came since. And I think that it kind of gets overshadowed on either way and doesn't really get the recognition that it deserves for uh, what an interesting and experimental mainstream film it was. It's kind of odd to think that um, when the film came out and around that time John Voight was kind of like a, 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 a kind of 
beautiful uh, leading man and there's a whole generation of people now who just see him as someone who turns up in a Bruckheimer film and does some uh, does some exposition yeah I think he's he strikes me as someone who won the Oscar and then which he did like several years later for, for coming home and then never really put much effort in after that you know he, he obviously this was a kind of a big breakout role for him and he kind of coasted on that for years doing good work but never kind of excelling mm-hmm. then he won an Oscar and then kind of settled in sort of a, a kind of career getting paychecks and occasionally doing good work uh, which is a terrible shame really because like you say in this obviously Dustin Hoffman gets all the attention because uh, Razzo Rizzo is is kind of this indelible iconic character that uh, you know is is still kind of referenced and uh, parodied in the culture today, and he's kind of uh, he he is a little he's not like bland, but he's less kind of distinct than that. But he still is doing sort of fine work and really sells the he's he's a key part in selling that sort of central partnership and making it affecting yeah and that's something that like uh, for me uh, coming to that film thinking that I knew about the film more than I did I was expecting uh, Hoffman's performance to be like ridiculously broad um, mm. but that is such a heartbreaking performance yeah because on the one hand he's this kind of a ridiculous caricature of someone who's like a real hustler and kind of a sleazebag but he does have sort of real warmth to him and you get the sense that these two guys do really care about each other which science shines through in uh, in the ending which thanks to that uh, that wonderful haunting score uh, is just kind of one of the I think one of the all time great endings to a film which I won't spoil for people who haven't seen it it's a really good film yeah the bus <laughs> drops below 50 and it explodes <laughs> um, oh God, while it, harmonica plays in the background yeah yeah there's been many parodies of uh, of, uh, of uh, Midnight Cowboy, but I think my favourite one is from Black Books, uh, where Manny, <laughs> Manny goes walkabout and he gets uh, kind of taken in by the man who wants to exploit his beard. Yes, that's a very good one. I think my favourite might be a very uh, a passing one in uh, Future Armour when uh, Zap and Kith get fired from the uh, the Duke uh, Navy and uh, they go out and become hustlers and Zack is kitted out in the hole. Uh, cowboy outfit, but all the old women want to do is have sex with Kiff, right. <laughs> which is uh, just a, it's a very short parody, but it's uh, it's absolutely delightful to me. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's our controversial choice out of the way, if you can call it controversial. It's definitely our only Oscar Best Picture winner. Um, so yeah, don't get your hopes up for us to include the film Crash, which we would never do. <laughs> because it's one of the worst films ever made um, so yeah okay uh, moving on from uh, Best Picture winner and uh, uh, our second choice Midnight Cowboy um, probably fair to say this is our first real oddball choice um, we've picked uh, 1988's Miracle Mile this can't be true we'll all be dead if we don't get out of here Nobody believes this, do they? Not me, not Spongy. Make a list for me. People who we want to bring along. Who we got to get Julie? Who's Julie? Harry Belafonte. Who are you? Who are you? Stop and let me off. I don't stop and let me Jump! Now, if you were to probably explain Miracle Mile to a layman, uh, they might be uh, kind of taken aback that it's a film that could actually work, because it is, on paper... 
a kind of a romantic comedy drama that turns uh, very sharply uh, into a real-time uh, apocalyptic nuclear race against time thriller. Yeah, I, th- I think it's the a good example of what Paul Thomas Anderson called a gear shift movie, where a film starts out as one thing and then at some point just radically changes into an entirely but different beast entirely. Mm, and, uh, at the dust till dawn, as it will. Yes, dust till dawn or uh, Psycho, mm-hmm. you know that 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 kind of thing. And uh, this one, yeah, if you're right, if you if you were to describe it, or even if you were to just kind of show someone the first scene of the film and the final scene of the film <laughs> and try to ask them how exactly you get from A to B they would I think people would think it can't be done those, there's such huge difference between those in, in distance and in tone but when you actually watch it it sort of ratchets up the tension in a way that feels really organic even though it's kind of crazy yeah it shouldn't work it shouldn't work that a story in which uh, Anthony Edwards uh, kind of uh, meets Mayor Whittingham uh, of Cinema's uh, fire fame and he's kind of trying to arrange a date with her and then he a power outage at his house shorts his alarm clock so he doesn't get up at the right time and then uh, one thing leads to another and he en- ends up answering a uh, ringing uh, public telephone box uh, he answers the phone in there and uh, a panicked man who is manned who is manning a, a kind of a nuclear uh, uh, launch site is ringing, trying to get through to his dad, saying that you know the button's been pressed, and the world's going to end in t minus, you know, fifty minutes, and the rest of the film is a countdown. From that point, uh, it seems like those contrivances shouldn't make for a good film, but it's hugely enjoyable and hugely watchable. Yeah, and um, I think it is because you, you that first twenty minutes or so really does invest you in their relationship because they both seem very charming people and you think oh it'd be nice if you know these two kids could make it work and then that really is kind of underpinning everything uh, Anthony Edwards does throughout the rest of the film you know he's he's trying to repair his relationship with this girl at the same time that he's thinking oh my god I've got to get a helicopter out of Los Angeles because a bomb's going to go off mm. uh, and I think that that is, is why it works is it's still you know, it's still a relationship, a story about a relationship that's uh, going through some some difficulties. It's just that the difficulties, uh, as the film goes on, kind of become greater and greater and involve uh, uh, just roving bands of of uh, or it involves uh, car chases, exploding uh, petrol stations, SWAT teams, and uh, as opposed to just. Uh, you know, a bad date. I mean, it's a bad date. Oh, it's a very it's a really, bad date. It's a very bad date, but it's, it's a lot bigger than that. Mm. Um, it, it's a film that's notable for, even when it was released, it was kind of uh, popular with critics to the extent that they were like, well, this has got certainly more going on than meets the eye. Uh, but the film, pun intended, bombed at the box office. Uh, why do you think people couldn't really get on board with it? Uh, I think... I, d- I think it's it's very difficult to kind of make a film that's really entertaining about what I think for many people was their greatest fear, mm. which was the nuclear annihilation. And obviously it's coming out at the tail end of the Cold War, but I think that probably was still playing in people's minds. Or perhaps, you know, people had kind of gone beyond that and it seemed kind of quaint to have a film revolve around a, around a nuclear apocalypse as people seemed to think that it was receding further into the distance. Mm. Um but like, like as you say, I think it's it's something that if you just try and describe it to someone, 
they think there's no way that could possibly work. And obviously, it's it's it, it has its moments of real kind of uh, bleakness, such as the moment when uh, the our hero uh, leads to someone getting set on fire and dying very horribly. <laughs> our our romantic lead, um, and you know, it juggles these kind of strange sort of shifts in tone it handles them really well but i think if you were trying to just sell it to a broad audience of people who are just like what out for a fun night of the movies yeah. this kind of neon soaked journey into hell probably isn't gonna uh, re- uh resonate with a lot of people well given that how um kind of well that film is handled i guess um what did the director go on to do more or less nothing. I think he's done some TV work, but I think that he's he's never really kind of uh, recovered from the sort of the lack of success for that one, which is a real shame because yeah. you know obviously it's a really interesting film and it suggests that he was a guy who had had a really interesting sort of vision. Yeah, it's Steve Dejarnet is his name, and he Miracle Mile was the last film he made. So, ah, yeah. So I think it was. Uh, it it's definitely seems to have stopped people at the time from. Uh, from wanting to hire him and then obviously the film has proceeded a fair bit in memory since then so it's not even like a calling card that you can really play. Yeah I think yeah. I'm not saying that it's ripe for critical re-evaluation like it needs a you know a Eureka Masters of Cinema release but it's certainly one that doesn't deserve to slip through uh, uh, the public's fingers No and it is currently uh, all up on YouTube. Yeah. So if anyone wants to wants to watch it uh, now and kind of see why we're really enthusiastic about this this nutty film, then uh, it is it is available uh, to anyone who wants to watch it. Yeah, yeah. Or buy the DVD because Steve Dejarnet could probably do with the with the copies <laughs> uh, now. ER's finished because he directed a lot of ER. Uh, I've just read on Wikipedia. That's how prepared we are. Um, so yeah, okay. Miracle Mile, our first kind of oddball choice um, our next choice is uh, a film made by one of cinema's great uh, film directors who's made a masterpiece in practically every genre um, and so much so that we really struggle to pick any of his films because they are all listed in the list that we're not allowed to choose from um, it's a film by Billy Wilder and you know he's made like I said many masterpieces The Apartment uh, Some Like It Hot Sunset Boulevard Double Indemnity Lost Weekend um but we've chosen his 1951 press satire, Ace in the Hole. Maybe we'll have a couple of drinks. Maybe you'll even take me out for a big evening, huh? Why don't you wash that platinum out of your hair? Phony, below the belt journalism, that's what it is. Not below the belt, right in the gut, Mr. Boot. Um, now, this is another film that I've only seen kind of relatively recently, uh, because it's not really widely available outside of the US um, now I thought the apartment was pretty on the fucking nose for 1960 uh, Ace in the Hole is way ahead of its time in what it's saying kind of satirically about the press yes I think uh, it's uh, even watching it I watched it again today to prepare for this because it's been a few years since I, I'd last watched it and uh, I remembered it being cynical uh, but I think time had uh, somehow convinced me it was less cynical than it is because it is a bleak mm. satire. <laughs> it's it's a bleak, absurdist sort of satire of the of the tabloid press specifically and the kind of the doing anything for a story kind of culture. But just really the press in general, 
law enforcement society really it, it casts a very wide net of everyone it doesn't like yeah it's difficult to to envisage a film more cynical than the apartment um <laughs> but ace in the hole is 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 that yes i think uh just to in case people don't uh, know what it is it's a uh, film in which Kirk Douglas plays a man who's been fired from about a dozen newspapers for uh, lying and being good it's just generally sort of a a bit of a reprobate but he is someone who has a real nose for how to sell a story to people he ends up in Albuquerque working for a very small uh, newspaper there he uh, gets sent out to go and investigate a uh, rattlesnake hunt Mm. Uh, and on the way there he and his uh, photographer stop a gas station and find out that the owner had gone into these uh, cliff tops to try and hunt for Indian treasure and has been buried under there and uh, he obviously sees a great potential in this uh, for, a, for a human interest story and uh, you know reports it saying you know man went hunting for relics and is trapped uh, in the rubble and uh, from there it kind of spirals out becomes a, a, a literal uh, circus uh, with a Ferris wheel and everything, mm-hmm. as people as people come to gawp and as he exploits the uh, he exploits the the situation for his own sort of monetary gain and also for the monetary gain of the the poor man who's trapped in the cave's wife who uh, says she's going to leave him and then realizes that there's a, a great gain to be had from just running this little outpost where people come to stop and eat while they go to sort of gawp at the people working to try and free the guy. And uh, yeah, for, it is a, a sort of a chilling indictment of uh, what happens when people just have no sense of morality and only uh, look for sort of sensationalism in their work. It's quite a mix of styles, isn't it? Because on one hand, it's kind of uh, pretty kind of straight ahead, but then in other moments, it's quite noirish, isn't it? Yes, uh, the the Criterion uh, version it comes with an essay which is called uh, Noir in Daylight, because uh, uh, which I thought was very interesting because it is it does have this sort of very uh, noirish uh, stylings. It has this very terse, hard boiled dialogue, which in in some cases is very very funny, such as uh, the line that uh, Kirk Douglas basically describes and and Bill Wilder as the as the screenwriter. Uh, defines the character by saying, uh, "I'll do big. I can do big news and small news, and if there's no news, I'll bite a dog." Mm. <laughs> yeah, uh, which kind of sums up, you know, him as this this guy who who pretty much does that. He goes out and he essentially concocts a story and inserts himself into the story and alters the way that it could possibly go uh, mm. to the detriment of everyone involved. Um, and I think that uh, it, it has those sort of trappings uh, because obviously that's. That's sort of Billy Wilder's uh, kind of backing. Obviously, he'd made Double Indemnity, which is really kind of one of the definitive noir films. Uh, Sunset Boulevard, which was his immediate film, was kind of like a noir, but more about the vanity of Hollywood. And so this is kind of applying that same idea to sort of a a much bigger, broader beast than just kind of aging Hollywood starlets. Uh, Speaking of beasts, uh, Kurt Douglas's character, Chuck Tatum, is a you know, is he Billy Wilder's most monstrous creation? I should think so, especially if you consider his arc over the course of the film because, you know, you'd think a a more forgiving film would have had him realise that what he's doing is monstrous and trying to tone and he sort of does that but really what happens is he becomes aware of his own monstrousness mm. 
and and that kind of begins to tear him apart. So he doesn't become a better person. He just develops a level of awareness that you know sorts to eat him up inside, uh, which is a whole new level of sort of monstrousness for a character, really. Mm. Um, it was uh, one of Billy Wilder's. Uh, I think it was actually Billy Wilder's first big failure at the box office. Um, do you think that that kind of uh, informed his work afterwards? Uh, I think so. I think that immediately after that, he starts to do films that are a little safer until you know he does the apartment, which, as you say, is very on the nose and very kind of cynical. But that's another nine years later. Mm. I think you can see him doing stuff when he does things like Love in the Afternoon and uh, Witness for the Prosecution. Witness for the Prosecution is a really good film, but you know it's a it's an adaptation of an Ag- Agatha Christie. Uh, pot boiler, you know, so it's kind of you can see him moving away from that and getting a little bit uh, sort of safer. Mm. But at the same time, I think it's a really clear example of someone who had just won, you know, Oscars for directing Sunset Boulevard, which, you know, was a huge financial success and uh, a huge force at the Oscars, and using all of that goodwill to make the film that they felt they needed to make. Yeah. Uh, and I think you can really see that, you know, you can really tell that it's a film where he is expressing kind of his his real because uh, Billy Wilder was genuinely had I think quite a dim view of humanity he was a very cynical man he could be very funny but he could also be very very dark he famously said that uh, when someone asked him how he decided what kind of film he wanted to make he said when I'm happy I write a drama when I'm depressed I write a comedy and mm. I kind of wonder if it, if when he started on this it was like the happiest day of his life <laughs> because it's it goes so far in the other direction um, but I, I think it is kind of a really pure expression of, of him and his uh, his disdain for these institutions that he sees as being maybe not inherently corrupt. I think, you know, there are good people in the film. You know, the editor of the paper is shown to be a very sort of decent guy. But the, at a certain point, they do become corrupted by the bad people who use them. Like, you know, the the, the uh, crooked sheriff and, and things like that you know he's not saying that all law enforcement officers are crooked but this guy definitely is and they can abuse their power and mm. he's, he's really he's really taking aim at the people who uh, don't expose corruption but in fact kind of uh, help it f- uh, f- uh, fester um, I did kind of mention that it's not widely available outside the uh, US but I think it's due for a region to release uh, very soon, I think it's getting a, a master cinema. I think. Yes, I think. I think that's that's right. I think that's kind of one of the big releases this year. Um, it, I think it went out of print in the UK for quite a while, and it, for a long time it was called the Big Carnival, which is uh, uh, not as evocative as Ace in the Hole, and also is a little too on the nose. <laughs> yeah. For, for for everything the film does, mm. but uh, I think people should definitely endeavour to check out or in the US you know the, the Criterion version has just been re-released on Blu-ray and it's a, it's a really visually very striking film and, and is sort of also a film that is uh, as relevant today as it ever was so people should definitely check that one out mm, which is odd to say about, for a, about a film that's kind of 60 odd years old yeah I think the reviews from the time were interesting as well because there was one review I was, I was reading in preparation for this where they, they took it to task saying for attacking uh, institutions that generally work, such as the free press and democratic government, and I kind mm-hmm. of thought even even for 1951, that's either horribly disingenuous or wildly naive. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. considering considering that all the king's men had already been released, saying that no, there's a lot of corruption in those institutions. Mm, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think people perhaps weren't quite uh, uh, ready for what Mr. Wilder had to say in you know later years, because um, otherwise they'd have seen that coming. Um, our next film on our list um, is, uh, I think the only sports movie on our 100 oh no there's another one I've just remembered it it's one of two sports movies <laughs> on our 100 <laughs> um, uh, it's uh, Ron Shelton's 1988 film Bull Durham well I believe in the soul the cock the pussy the small of a woman's back the hanging curveball high fiber good scotch that the novels of Susan Sontag are self-indulgent overrated crap I believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone I believe there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter uh, now some directors do kind of one thing really well and Ron Shelton bless him uh, he makes a certain type of sport movie uh, really really well um, Paul Durham's probably his best one he also did uh, White Men Can't Jump which is a great movie and then even something like Tin Cup which seems uh, kind of throwaway he did kind of years later it still has that kind of uh, kind of filthy magic to it um, and Paul Durham is uh, easily his best film it's, it's quite often voted one of the better sport movies of all time but it's never really considered uh, outside of its genre yeah I think that there are so many sort of bad sports movies that mm. I think is maybe even more so than uh, than horror films because there are so many bad sort of cliches for it you know things being you know inspirational in sort of ironic quotation marks um, or be sort of underdog stories etc etc uh, that it all kind of feels a little bit false and never really captures the excitement of actual sport mm. uh, or, or of uh, of the uh, painful uh, experience of being a fan of a sport, which really is what Bull Durham is about. Yeah, I, I, I think of it as kind of like a, a holistic uh, sports movie because it's about the mechanics of how to play baseball mm. and how to play baseball well, but it's also about the culture of baseball in the minor leagues and of sort of sticking with a team for years and years and years as players move and go and and as you know people try to rise above it and some do and some don't uh, and it's kind of about the entire culture of a sport as viewed for the kind of microcosm of one team and a handful of people and it's it's got that real uh, sting of authenticity to it because Ron Shelton himself played minor league baseball professionally in the uh, the Orioles uh, organisation uh, in the kind of 70s and 80s so it really does have that kind of authentic ring of truth to it there's a famous scene where um, the players are out on the piss and they they don't want to play the next day, so they go to the ground and they flood it with sprinklers so they can have a rain out the next day. And that's <laughs> something that actually genuinely happened, uh, although uh, I've read that they actually brought in a helicopter to dry the pitch and the game had to go ahead and they were all hung over. But like, um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of authenticity in there, that uh, which is perhaps what separates other sport movies from something like Bull Durham. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a film that looks really really good and you know it doesn't it doesn't have kind of you know if you compare it to something like Friday Night Lights which has the for, for football does the like the handheld realism sort of thing this one is very artfully composed mm. but you know there's no kind of it's not a glossy kind of composition it's not trying to make the sport look more glamorous than it is it's very dusty it's very kind of sweaty and it's very it, it does capture the experience of being at a real kind of rundown 
not especially wealthy uh, baseball ground. Mm. Yeah, it's also really fucking funny. The film, uh, mm-hmm. its uh, yeah. its script was uh, was Oscar nominated, although you know we know that's not a surefire seal of approval. Um, but uh, there's there's some really great touches in there. That, that great one liner where he's uh, Kevin Costner's asking uh, Tim Robbins to throw the ball at him to see if he could hit him, and he says. Uh, you couldn't hit water if you fell out of a fucking boat, which is uh, an absolute great singer. <laughs> uh, the thing that we haven't mentioned about Bull Durham is that film, despite the fact that Kevin Costner is in the lead and uh, it's a, a breakout performance by Tim Robbins, that film is Susan Sarandon's. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely something that sets it apart from a lot of uh, a lot of sports movies. It has a very strong female voice and a strong female perspective. Uh, which you know, obviously, sports in general are seen as being so very macho, except in the case of um, something like Whippet, where all the characters are women. Mm. Uh, so, so I think that does cast it in a different light. But it's also it's not kind of like a faux attempt to appeal to a female audience. Like the character is someone who dearly loves baseball and really understands it, and you know, sort of believes that she can make uh, people into better baseball players through, uh, through sort of guiding them. And uh, I think that gives it a different flavour and a different feel to a lot of similar sort of films, like something like The Natural, or uh, where sort of the female characters are always very sidelined and not very important. Mm. Yeah, um, a little bit of trivia uh, for Ball Durham. Uh, Kurt Russell contributed to the script. Uh, Kurt Russell is an actor who uh, uh, also played uh, minor league baseball. Uh, and a long-standing friend of Ron Shelton's, he co-wrote it, or co-wrote some of it, and kind of was a bit of a script advisor, and uh, was actually going to play the lead, but couldn't do it. So uh, Kevin Costner did it. Yeah, oh, that's that's actually very cool, and uh, I think I think you know Costner's great in it. I would have really liked to have seen what Kurt Russell, who's got a much uh, sort of grittier, grimier sort of personality could have really brought to that character mm. uh, the one thing that I kind of rewatched this a few weeks ago and the one thing that kind of struck me uh, is uh, Kevin Costner had a lot of charisma back in the day yeah I was also quite surprised to see how funny uh, uh, Tim Robbins is in it because in my mind my image of, of Tim Robbins is sort of his later career what well, not even career like his sideline the sort of uh, sort of very a, a pious uh, Hollywood liberal, you know, in the best possible sense. He's someone who obviously believes in a lot of courses, but you know, I, I kind of think of him in sort of Dead Man as the director of uh, Dead Man Walking and things mm. like that. Mm. Uh, so, but you know, I kind of forget that he just came through in the Groundlings and was really good friends with uh, Tenacious D mm. <laughs> and all these sort of things. So he has a really strong background in comedy. Obviously, cameos in Anchorman, but you know, that's I think he's if we're talking like you know talking about John Voight in Midnight Cowboy, he's someone who's uh, public persona seems quite a bit different to sort of his actual body of work in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's the film in which uh, him and Susan Sarandon met, and consequently got together. Oh, are they are they still together? Uh, I think so. Oh. Could have been Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell in this film. Uh, <laughs> Hollywood's other golden couple. Um, anyway, um, moving on. Um, our next pick. Um, is uh, I suppose a little bit of a left field choice considering what else we could have chosen by this director um, uh, we've chosen uh, Martin uh, the film by George Romero from 1978 my name is Martin I'm 84 years old people think I'm crazy when I tell them how old I am 
I'd like to be normal. I just have a sickness. The only way I can survive is by drinking blood. Um, it's kind of easy to forget, given that George Romero is mostly known for zombie films, uh, kind of reinventing the zombie film. Well, actually, inventing it, then reinventing it, <laughs> then killing it by fucking rinsing it and repeating it until it got so fucking boring that no one else wants to see it ever again. Um, but it's easy to forget, given all that, that he made an absolutely amazing vampire movie, or a kind of a pseudo-vampire movie. Yeah, I think, uh, in, in some ways, I think we talked about this in the past, the, the idea that the success of his zombie films it was in some ways the worst thing to happen to George A. Romero because he became the zombie guy. Obviously, he made films in in, in other genres since then, mostly horror. Mm. But you know, he kind of became stereotyped as the zombie guy. And when I think his his sort of commercial uh, his his career kind of found a little bit, he kept going back to it and, and kind of reached the point where that was already made. But uh, I think in in this or the crazies or. Uh, uh, Night Riders is it the one where he does it about uh, Renaissance Renaissance knights or guys who joust on motorcycles? Oh, motorcycles, yeah. Yeah, he he was someone who could really turn his hand to a lot of different things and and imbue stuff with his own sort of unique energy. I think you can really see that in this, where as you say, it is a pseudo uh, vampire movie because it's about a man, a young man who believes himself to be a vampire and whose uh, insane family believe him to be a vampire but who uh, does not actually have the fangs. He drugs women and uh, has sex with them and then cuts them with a razor to drink their blood, but he's not actually got fangs in the traditional sense. And, and then there's, he goes out in the day and there's really no evidence in the film to suggest that he is a vampire. But the film has the, the trappings of, of a vampire movie and, and uh, sort of the iconography of it, even though at pretty much every stage it kind of debunks a lot of the things. Like he deliberately shows that crosses don't mean anything to him and that garlic has no effect on him but at the same time he's clearly a very messed up individual yeah it's kind of like a delusional vampire film mm. where yeah. the only person yeah basically a few select people believe someone is a vampire and that's it uh, and there's these yeah. really great this great kind of flashback structure which is clearly fantasy but then you're not 100% sure if what is happening in those is something that happened in the past or what it's it's a very kind of uh, ambiguous film yes you, you're never entirely sure if the memories that he is having of sort of being a vampire in like the 1800s mm. are real things that he genuinely has because he's a vampire or if it's something that his the various members of his family have kind of beaten into him the idea that he is a vampire because there is definitely a sense that this is not something that's grown up organically from him it's something from this deeply strange and, and religious uh, family that he's kind of found himself in and then he either is a vampire or he's just trying to fit to the image that they're created of him yeah um, it's probably post Night of the Living Dead it's probably uh, Romero's starkest film isn't it it's pretty fucking dark yeah, there's not a lot of hope in it um, mm. when, when your hero is a serial date rapist. Slash vampire. Slash possible vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, you know, it is, it is a really kind of compelling film and I think it's it's interesting how much sympathy it has for Martin in terms of trying to say that, you know, he is a terrible person 
but he's also just kind of a mixed up guy who you know at one point does uh, form a genuine relationship with a woman and sort of seems to be he seems capable of normality but at the same time he's so horribly damaged psychologically that he does these kind of incredibly weird and creepy things like break into people's houses uh, and hide out in their garage uh, or, or you know everything else that he does in the sort of the film which I don't really want to go into because some of it's really dark and horrible uh, but also it also paints you know his uh, the is it his uncle that he's living with or cousin yeah kind of I think so I don't know if it's ever actually stated yeah his his relative undefined relative uh, kind of paints him as uh, being uh, his as as a awful monstrous person in his own right but you know even worse because he believes that he is righteous and that he is on the side of, of right even though he himself does some really fucked up things mm. yeah yeah it is a very very messed up piece of work and I think it is a real shame that it is uh, it lives in the shadow of uh, of the of the dead films uh, especially the later ones that George Romero made which are uh Less than stellar in their quality. <laughs> um, also, um, you were talking earlier about um, yeah, he made a he made a vampire film. He also made uh, some of like the crazies um, or or Night Riders. Uh, have you ever seen Monkey Shines? The film he made about um, kind of uh, monkey butlers that go on the loose and uh, and uh, yeah, go bad. Like it's set in a world where monkeys do things for disabled people and then they kind of go insane. Uh, I haven't seen that one. I now really want to more than anything. <laughs> yeah, it's nowhere near as good as I've made it sound. Uh, <laughs> but it is a thing. It is genuine. But it's really straight-faced. It's, it's not really the the kind of comic touch that there should be in a film that's about monkey butlers going mental. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, moving on from monkey butlers. Um, uh, no monkeys in the following film, I don't recall. Um, this uh, next choice is uh, Jim Jarmusch's Down by Law. Oh, my friends! What the hell's going on here, Bob? Um, probably the best introduction point to Jim Jarmusch's work, do you think? I think so, yeah. I think uh, it's it's got a lot more of a, a structure and sort of a, a genre conceit to it than something like uh, Stranger Than Paradise which is a really a really fun film in a very similar sort of vibe because a lot of his films really are just about people hanging out and having fun together mm. and some of them are some of them are more rigidly structured than others uh, so, so if you look at uh, Night on Earth which is you know, or, which is a, uh, just an anthology film of, of different people hanging out in taxis in different cities which is uh, just basically a collection of really good short films or um uh, or, or Broken Flowers, which is just a kind of a, a character study, which is is really funny, but not uh, necessarily that accessible. This, I think, has the right balance between, on the one hand, being a film that's just about three guys kind of hanging out and having sort of and sort of bouncing off of each other, and sort of having a very recognisable sort of conceit, which is that it's a, a prison break movie, mm. and it's a prison break movie where there's zero emphasis on the escape plan or even the kind of elaborate escape and what how they do it. It's just some guys who don't get along 
at the start who are kind of thrown together in a cell. Uh, they're played by uh, John Lurie, Tom Waits and Roberto Benigni. Um, and they really don't like each other and then they hang out for a bit and then they decide to escape but then they they just cut to them being out <laughs> uh, and they're on the lamb. Yeah, I think that I, I remembered it being really abrupt but uh, you know, re-watching it I was genuinely shocked by how abrupt it is because it goes from Roberto Benigni saying hey, there's like a there's like a thing in the yard and I think you could get out through that and they're saying no, you couldn't do that that's impossible to instantly them like dangling down a rope and running through the sewers <laughs> yeah and that's it and then it's like I think that's just the way that Jim Jarmusch would do it that's not the important thing it's about the guys uh, relentlessly screaming about ice cream or like arguing about bunk beds <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah it is a really good primer for everything else he's done I think the first Jim Jarmusch film I saw was Ghost Dog where the samurai and then I kind of worked backwards and then I kind of hopped backwards and forwards like Stranger Than Paradise and uh, then to like Dead Man and then yeah it took me a while to settle on Down By Law um, but it, it does kind of just encapsulate everything about Jim Jarmusch that you could kind of see and everything else he's ever done yeah because it's really it's got a very very deadpan sense of humour and it's, it's very uh, beautiful, like the, the the cinematography of New Orleans is in you know stark black and white, but it's very eerie, uh, it, particularly because so many of the street scenes are abandoned, yeah. which uh, gives it the, the even though it's shot sort of largely on location, gives it the sense of being on sort of a soundstage. Yeah, it's uh, uh, Robbie Muller who does the photography for that. He's uh, uh, kind of he's been around the block a few times. Uh, he's done a lot of films with uh, Vin Vendors. Um, and yeah, he's a kind of a, a go-to guy for Jim Jarmusch. And it's funny that, like we talked recently about True Detective. Um, it, Louisiana really does kind of lend itself to uh, to looking kind of sumptuous and kind of also quite horrible on there on on the on the big screen. Yeah, certainly when you see them kind of going out on the bayou. Yeah, and they're, they're like a, you, it, on the one level, it's really serene and beautiful seeing the camera kind of glide over that sort of scummy water and just kind of slowly move through like a ghost mm. on the other level is really uh, it's a really sort of forbidding place uh, as, as evidenced by the fact they constantly get lost but at the, at the same time because they're, they're, their personalities clash so much they're constantly bickering and kind of taking shots at each other yeah and it's a film which is odd because it's a reminder of when Robert Roberto Benigni was not the world's most punchable actor Yes, his uh, his kind of annoyingness really kind of plays into the role because he's so disarming, and he's so kind of in comparison to Tom Waits and uh, and uh, John Lurie, who are both very, you know, they're not they're non actors, so I think they downplay mm. quite a bit in order to compensate that, and they do it very well in a way that I find very funny and engaging, but. Uh, you know, he is so the opposite end of that that it kind of it meshes together very well, and you would kind of uh, understand. You can see why this guy would be the spark that allows these guys to become friends with each other, because he kind of forces them to uh, identify themselves against his kind of manic energy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, uh, it's a it's a wonderful piece of work, and I'd recommend you will watch it. Uh, kind of post haste um, great soundtrack as well John Lurie does the soundtrack as well yeah and uh, there's a couple of really great uh, Tom Waits songs included on the soundtrack yeah 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 
All these things seem like such Jim Jarmuschian preoccupations. Laurie, <laughs> Wade, Spanini, but like, you know, this is where it all began. Uh, our next choice uh, is a film that is uh, kind of attached to a, a certain cinematic movement, which um, is interesting in itself. Um, we've picked uh, Suzanne Bier's Open Hearts from 2002. <laughs> And I'm kind of uh, talking cinematic movements. It's uh, from the Dogma 95 uh, uh, kind of aesthetic, um, which, if you don't know, is a set of rules made up by crazy Danish people um, about how to make films a bit more interesting. Uh, it kind of had general sets of rules. Uh, like the first rule of Dogma 95 was uh, there is no Dogma 95. Uh, mm -hmm. Couldn't resist squeezing that gag in there. But like, it was all about kind of being more naturalistic and using um, handheld cameras and no artificial light, no artificial music, no special effects. It was a focus on story and, and acting and, and, and character rather than anything else. And it led to some really great films. Uh, but the poster boys for that movement are things like Festen or The Idiots or Julien Donkey Boy. Um, but Open Hearts is an often overlooked film and, and not many people talk about it but it's one of the strongest ones of the entire kind of uh, thread I guess yeah I mean like in the in the past we've talked about uh, Dogma 95 and I, I always say that Festum is one of only two films from Dogma 95 that I can actually stand mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, Open Hearts is the other one because uh, like my problem with, with Dogma 95 is it's obviously very interesting in the abstract and I really like seeing people kind of experiment with with kind of throwing off the shackles of artificiality of cinema but at the same time I think that leads to a certain self-consciousness and it really uh, it, when I watch a Dogma film I, I become really aware of the fact that I'm watching a film mm. which kind of seems like the exact opposite of, of what it's intended to do uh, and I think that a large part of that is that the aesthetics kind of overwhelm the story because people are making these films and they're so scrappy and so lo-fi that you kind of lose sight of, of interesting characters and plot. Feston uh, does that really well. It's got an interesting sort of dynamic and location and, and explores some interesting and dark themes. Uh, and what I like about Open Hearts is that it does a similar thing where it applies all of these aesthetic choices whilst also breaking a few of the rules. There is some non-diegetic music and there are elements of the plot which are sort of things that you can't fake, mm. in the, which is one of the things that Dogme is uh, very much against. But uh, it's, uh, it has this very strong uh, dry story, which at the times could be quite melodramatic, because it's about a, a young woman whose uh, fiancé is in a car accident and ends up paralysed, and the uh, white, the, the woman who runs him over is uh, her husband, played by uh, Mads Mikkelsen, uh, is uh, is the doc a doctor and uh, he uh, is uh, treating the he agrees to treat the, uh, the the boyfriend and then he falls in love with the girlfriend and and you know it has this this plot that uh, you know if you kind of break it down and kind of lay out all the elements sounds incredibly kind like something from a soap opera really mm. uh, you know it has that but it's because the the dog may think. Uh, de-emphasizes the kind of the more sensationalistic elements and makes it so natural and because the the, the performance in it are so uh, earthy and so interesting uh, it, it kind of 
works in spite of the fact that uh, the story is kind of this very sort of artificial seeming construct and the visuals are kind of so naturalistic it, it combines to make something very interesting I read uh, today that um, Open Hearts is actually going to be remade by Zach Braff uh, as his follow up to Garden State and uh, he never got around to it I'm very pleased that didn't happen yeah I, I wrote a review of it when I I, I saw the film in uh, in 2009 I think I wrote or I wrote a review of it in 2009 I think I saw it a bit earlier and um, in that that was my final paragraph was just urging people to go and watch the original before Zach Braff came along and ruined it because <laughs> mm. we talked um, about the fact that the film could very easily lapse into melodrama well if there's one person who's sure to, to push it over the edge it's, it's Mr Braff yeah, I think we should be careful though, because he might uh, he might tweet abuse at us as he has to people who don't like his current film. Oh right, okay. But, yeah, as he's done over the last couple of days, or at least he's done it to one guy, uh, and it just seemed uh, kind of classless. Because yeah. uh, as someone pointed out, if he's going to go after all the people who don't like his new film, <laughs> he's going to be busy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it out yet? I mean, it's the one that was funded by Kickstarter, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it's unlimited um, release over here now because the original view was written at Sundance and then it got kind of uh, reposted around a bit. So I think it must have just come out or just started uh, previewing. Right, okay. All and right. it has it has such a generic name, I can never remember what it is. I think it's called Wish I Was Here. Oh, you prick, Raph. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, anyway, don't watch that. Uh, if, if he does get around to remaking Open Hearts, don't do it, kids. Uh, stay away from Braff. Stay off Braff. Um, it's it's not good for you. So yeah, open hearts. Um, our next choice um, uh, might surprise some people. It might not. I hope you're all kind of liberally minded people. Um, but our next choice is uh, when Harry met Sally. Harry, I think this takes a long time. It might be months before we're actually able to enjoy going out with someone new. Yeah. And maybe longer. Before we're actually able to go to bed with someone new. Oh, I went to bed with her. You went to bed with her? Sure. Hmm. Um, now I say it might surprise some people, because I think there's probably a lot of people who haven't seen When Harry Met Sally who think it's shit. Um, because it's, uh, on paper, it's a romantic comedy about two people who meet, and they, they don't really get along at first, but then, you know, through some hilarious... Uh, capery, they end up kind of being together, I hope that's not a spoiler but the reason that When Harry Met Sally is so good um, is it is the film that invented uh, that kind of idea, invented the, the modern romantic comedy and it does, did so in the smartest, funniest um, most likeable way imaginable yeah, I mean it's it's telling that you know the film so perfected the sort of examination of the question of can men and women sleep together and still be friends or, or can men and women truly be friends because sex will always be part of the equation uh, but in 2011 there were two films came out trying to do the exact same thing and both of which you know people looked at and just said well it's all right but it's not when Harry met Sally it's a fit it's there's a whole subgenre of people who are trying to top something that uh, Rob Reiner and Nora Ephraim got perfectly right in 1989. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like, uh, I was kind of thinking about this earlier today, that um, 
there's a few examples in kind of genre cinema where someone's written a script that's so good that it kind of uh, ruins it for everyone else. And uh, when Harry Met Sally kind of does it for the romantic uh, comedy, uh, something like Halloween would do it for the, the kind of horror film. Something like Die Hard for the action film where there are so many other versions that are all struggling to get out of that mould. Uh, that you know, and all of those films have got immaculately written scripts. Uh, it's kind of easy to forget. Um, and yeah, it's it's so many films are trying to break through that, but it's just there's there's just no way to do it. You just can't top it. It's, it's that good. Yeah, I think that that's something that because when Harry Met Sally, Sally has kind of become defined by you know uh, Meg Ryan uh, faking the orgasm in the restaurant. You know, that's kind of the moment that everyone knows from the film and it's a very funny moment and you know it's obviously uh, plays into the battle of the sexes uh, kind of uh, vibe running throughout the whole film that people forget that it is you know that's kind of like the broadest uh, moment of a film that's really incisive mm. in how it investigates sort of relationships and, and friendships between men and women and that uh, is by turns you know really cynical and certainly in the Billy Crystal character you know he's someone who is uh, it's very uh, has a very sort of cynical view of love and relationships and sort of how men men and women relate to each other. But he also, uh, at the end of the film, has uh, probably one of the most romantic lines in cinema, which is uh, when you've met the person you want to spend the rest of your life with, you want to, the rest of your life to start right now. Mm. Which I think is just an amazingly uh, lovely kind of sentiment. And because it comes from a character who is sort of so cynical, I think it it works better than if it was in kind of a really mushy chick flick. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what and all the other imitators they they get wrong. They they kind of they, they they kind of just think they put the ingredients into the bowl and and it will kind of come out the same as when Harry met Sally, but it never does. And uh, one of the principal ingredients that's missing from all those kind of knockoff recipes, as it were, is is chemistry. There's like the most amazing chemistry between uh, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan and it's kind of odd that they've both got completely different backgrounds. Meg Ryan's a dramatic actress, Billy Crystal's a stand-up comic. Um, but it just works so perfectly. Um, and, yeah, it's something that so many other films strive for but never never manage to attain. But you've also got the uh, great casting in uh, Their Best Friends, which are, uh, is it Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby? It is, yes, yeah. Yes, who are just amazing as a, a couple together and they have great chemistry with each other but also with their friends mm. and it's just it's an amazing uh, example of four actors who are just so perfectly cast and play with each other so very well and are really good sort of in their individual elements and I think most kind of films that try to copy when Harry Met Sally will maybe get one or two of the characters right yeah whereas this one got all of them and if you want to see all four of them in uh, in full flow my, one of my favourite scenes from any film ever is the uh, three-way split-screen phone conversation that they have the night yeah. after Harry and Sally sleep together which is the tightest bit of comedy scripting you can kind of possibly hope for and I think that's the that that point in the film you're watching you think well hang on that's something that's you know most comedy writers could could you know not even get near and yeah Nora Ephron really nailed that one yeah I think um do you think that one of the things that's really success makes the film so successful is that uh, it is it's written by Nora Ephron, but she wrote it in very close collaboration with Rob Reiner, 
and so it has both the male and female input and the, the male and female perspective whereas I think a lot of the subsequent ones either have only like really one or the other yeah I think so and it's also notable the fact that the two of them were dating and it, the whole thing about whether men and women could be friends um, because the attraction begets in a way is based on conversations they had when they were just kind of shooting the shit and I think if you kind of know anything about Rob Reiner or Nora Ephron the per- their personalities really do come through in those characters on screen and I think that you're right most films are either told from one or the other and they end up either being uh, a bit too kind of uh, mushy or a bit too kind of like cynical it's, there's, the balance isn't quite there at all yeah I think that the, the thing that's uh, really great about uh, When Harry Met Sally is that it's so good and it has that balance between cynicism and sentiment so perfectly down that it even earns like what is by everyone's assertion a real cop out happy ending it's like it doesn't it doesn't matter that it's the Hollywood ending Mm. it's one that feels right and you're happy for the characters that it ends the way it does absolutely and that that kind of um, uh, the framing device of you having interviews with what are purported to be real couples uh, all the way through the film which for years I thought they were real people <laughs> and that uh, <laughs> Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan at the end were uh, you know the, the only kind of exceptions Um it kind of I don't know if, if, if you watch the film and wish for another ending that kind of structure it kind of yeah it feels false and uh, yeah I, I think that's a really kind of bold way to do it it's, uh, yeah, it's something that yeah you uh, really can't fake and like I watched a, uh, I give it a year the other day which is the lamest <laughs> attempt to uh, try and uh, uh, kind of uh, shoot some new life into a romantic comedy genre and it's just so it falls so flat on on every level um and yeah, the the leads are really unlikable, and you know they kind of try and be kind of a bit different, a bit brazen with it, and it just yeah, it just doesn't quite have it. But uh, I think when Harry Met Sally is one of those, just one of those rare kind of magic in a bottle kind of examples, isn't it? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And like you say, it's it's so good; it basically ruins the genre for hundreds of other people who try to do the same thing. Yeah, thanks, Rob Reiner and. Uh, <laughs> and Nora Ephron you arseholes uh, with your good films you um, the last film of our first ten um, is a film that kind of has a kind of extra poignancy uh, given kind of recent events we've chosen Charlie Kaufman's Cynic Doki New York I'm hurt am I dying can you tell me that I can't tell you you can't tell me no no you can't tell me if you can't tell me no I'm lonely yes. and I'm afraid I'm gonna die anything else I don't know what's wrong with me and I want to do something important while I'm still here that would be the time to do it yes Um, when we recorded our Philip Seymour Hoffman tribute earlier this year we talked about uh, what would be the definitive Philip Seymour Hoffman performance and and at that point when we recorded that I hadn't actually seen this film Uh, having now seen it I think it's probably difficult to argue that this film isn't it yeah, I mean that uh, it captures, I think, him in a lot of his different modes. It's it's really funny. He's very funny in times, but at the same time, he is so kind of uh, emotionally kind of beaten by the film, and you know he d- he does that kind of uh, soulful hang dog thing, which I think was was kind of one of his default modes, but that he did kind of, he elevated more than 
you know, someone who does a similar sort of thing like you know Paul Giamatti, who is a really good actor, but who I, I never kind of felt had the sort of the depth in a lot of his performances that you can see uh, Hoffman bringing to this role. Mm. And he really he 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 has kind of an earthiness to a a plot and a sort of a, a premise that is uh, very high concept and abstract and surreal. Uh, I think that's kind of why the film works as well as it does, because on the one hand you have this guy who's giving this really uh, tortured performance of an, an, a man kind of striving to kind of say something about the human condition and failing and destroying his life in the process. Uh, at the same time, the way he's doing it is he is building a city in a warehouse and having people act out his life in front of him. Which is uh, nuts. <laughs> yeah, we talked earlier about Miracle Mile being a hard sell. Um, <laughs> could you sum up Synecdoche, New York, in a kind of tidy pitch? <laughs> uh, not really. It's kind yeah. of hard because I think I think it it starts out easy enough. He's like, okay, he's a guy, he's a playwright, he gets a grant to do whatever he wants uh, MacArthur Genius Grant I believe he has so he mm-hmm. decides he's going to you know try and restage his life inside the warehouse so he rebuilds an entire city and cast actors and that's fine but in order for him to be really accurate the him inside his fake world needs to build his own fake world inside another <laughs> warehouse and it's warehouses all the way down <laughs> it's kind of beyond yeah beyond a certain point it becomes kind of it becomes like the Matrix, you know. You can't really describe it; you have to see it for yourself. Yeah, uh, there's so much going on in the film, um, but what really kind of anchors it is uh, this kind of sense of just uh, like kind of overbearing sadness. Uh, mm. And I don't know whether I was just kind of affected, not affected, because you know I didn't know Philip Seymour Hoffman, but I don't know whether my view of the film was jaundiced by the fact that he died. Uh, and I watched it fairly recently after. I definitely think I haven't rewatched it since he died, and I kind of feel like it'd be one that'd be very hard to watch because uh, it, it was a very, it's a very poignant film in general because it's about a man who kind of believes that art will save him, uh, and it ends up destroying him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, it kind of, I think it's about the the beauty and the hollowness of, of art and the idea of trying to find meaning and immortality through it but if you kind of look at the, the, the progression of the central uh, story of, uh, of Cotard um, his, uh, it's, it's essentially a story of a man trying desperately to say something about the human condition and sort of destroying his life in the process which you know based on sort of what we've heard about uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's addictions and, and why he turned to heroin kind of feels horribly apt because mm. that, that's, that's kind of why he, he to heroin because he was someone who felt so deeply that he kind of needed something to numb the pain that he was in uh, and that that's kind of a, a feeling that kind of runs throughout the films it's about you know we're making this sound like a right laugh it's about the pain of being alive <laughs> <laughs> yeah we should have finished when, it, when Harry Maselli <laughs> yeah we should have but it's, it's really interesting I mean there's a there's a David uh, Foster Wallace um, essay about Kafka which is all about um, how Kafka is meant to be read as a comedy, as com- as a comedic writer, but in the sense that he is writing about the absurdity of life to kind of highlight how how absurd it is and and to kind of find meaning through that. And uh, to that extent, I think that this film feels very Kafkaesque because it looks at life through a really absurd lens. 
in order to try and uh, unearth some sort of deeper, sadder kind of truth. And I, I think it's really effective in that regard. Um, even as it kind of has moments that are very, very funny. Like, I think his relationship with... The, the relationship between Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Tom Newman, who plays the version of him in the film, in the play, mm. I think is very funny as a kind of relationship between a writer-director and the actor who's trying desperately to try and understand his role. I think their interplay is kind of quietly quite funny. Uh, I think it's just... A, it's a really interesting film in terms of what Charlie Kaufman is trying to say because it's kind of him unfettered because usually his his visions are being kind of interpreted through other directors who are like Spike Jones who are, or uh, uh, Michelle Gondry who uh, kind of focus it a little bit more whereas this is is so sprawling and yeah. kind of goes in so many directions yeah it must have taken some serious stones to put the money up for that film because uh, it costs quite a lot of money for uh, you know the film about the pain of being alive uh, told through uh, kind of a surrealistic lens um, and they must have just thought well yeah we'll make it but no one's going to fucking watch that and no one did really did they yeah it definitely feels similar to Ace in the Hole I think it feels like the film that you make when you've won an Oscar for write for best original screenplay mm. and you just kind of uh, put it all on a kind of a roll of the dice uh, of, of a, just a really kind of crazy dream project and uh, it's it's up there on the screen, you know. It, it definitely doesn't feel like a film that was compromised. No, that doesn't have a Hollywood ending. Oh God, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I I was working at the uh, the showroom in Sheffield. Take a shot. Yeah. Um, when uh, when that was out, and I watched it uh, all the way through. I kind of sat down and watched it, but I also caught the last ten minutes of it about. 12 or 13 times because I would have to go in 5 minutes from the end to just make sure to open the doors and everything and make sure that people could find their way out and uh, I tell you what that gets uh, that weighs heavy on your soul <laughs> over the course of a week yeah I would yeah. have asked to work like Frozen or something you know what I mean just something a bit lighter <laughs> just to kind of uh, I mean I don't know I've not seen Frozen it might have a pretty bleak ending but you know uh, probably not so yeah that was our first 10 uh, we hope we've given you something to chew on there uh, we'll have that list up on Letterboxd as well so you can kind of um, see it build over the weeks and months to come um, and yeah do you, uh, you got any like kind of uh, passing words to say about the uh, uh, the first 10 we've laid down as a marker I think they're all very strong I think they're very uh, very uh, varied, but uh, I would advise people not to watch them in the order we just listed them. No. Uh, you should pro- probably end with Harry we- Harry Metzale or uh, Stop Making Sense. Don't end with uh, with uh, Synecdoche, New York, because uh, that might uh, might be a recipe for disaster. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Don't do that, guys. Um, so yeah. Um, not sure what we've got next. It probably won't be another one of these. We'll probably break it up with a little bit of something in between. But knowing us, we'll probably be behind and have to do like three in one night. Um, <laughs> so uh, until our next episode, uh, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.